All right, good morning, everybody. And uh, last time I visited your church was when your church was first being planted back in Buena Park, and you had your uh, opening ceremony, and um, Dr. Tony Montoya, he came and he gave a great message. And I've been watching your church uh, from a distance. I've been checking your website, uh, listening to your sermons, and what's going on at your church from a distance. It's communicating with uh, Pastor James, and I'm just very thankful uh, about what God is doing uh, in your church. And um, I wish I could stay a little bit longer and listen to the testimony that's going on in Kazakhstan. Um, this summer, our church is going over to China, uh, Urumqi, which is the, right across the border of Kazakhstan in China. And we have a missionary who's been working in Kazakhstan who's just coming over to China to plant an underground uh, seminary there. And we're going out to uh, Urumqi University to, to help them out for the summer. So I'm really interested to, to hear about what's going on in Kazakhstan, but uh, I guess I'm going to have to check your website. Um, yeah, I've known Pastor James probably longer than anybody here, other than Kelly. Uh, we've been, actually we went to the same church when we were younger, my, my father's church, and, and uh, I was uh, one year ahead of him in school, and I remember his mom always coming to me asking, begging me, Please get James to come to church. Um, we went to the same church. Uh, he did, technically. <laughs> but later on, uh, we ended up having Bible study together back in college. And um, I remember the first couple weeks we did Bible study, I remember James came, and he didn't have his Bible study, he didn't have his book, he didn't have anything. And, and, I, and I noticed, you know, I noticed that he came out and he had some scratches on his neck, and I knew something was wrong. Uh, so obviously I asked him, James, what's going on? And, and I, he had tears in his eyes. And, uh, we, me, him, myself, and, uh, another guy named Albert, we went to Viola, um, the grass where we can just kind of have our privacy and we asked him what's going on. And, uh, James, back in high school, was known to be very free-spirited. And, uh, even the guys who used to ditch school used to confront him about ditching school. <laughs> So, you know, he, he had a reputation of, of being free-spirited, and, uh, and I remember he came back, and what he, what he said was, you know, his dad was confronting him because he told him that, that he wanted to be a Christian, and he, he was considering maybe even changing his major, and his dad got so upset at him, and uh, they got in, in a physical, I guess, a physical situation, and, and he, I remember him telling me that, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to give my life to Him. You know, and all my life I've been doing whatever I wanted, ditching school, and they never said anything. But the first time I give my life and I go to my dad to tell him about it, and this is, the, this is what I get. And I remember him, you know, having tears and we praying over him. I didn't really know exactly what to say to him because I was a young Christian myself. And uh, he spent a couple weeks at our apartment because he couldn't go back home after that. And I remember thinking back then, that, man, God's going to use this guy, you know. He has, a, he has a passion for God that is very difficult to see in a lot of uh, young Christians today. And I remember even back then thinking from the very beginning that this is a, this is a guy who's going to commit. You know, this is a guy who's going to continue to go. Um, I share that story um, for two reasons. One, it's his church. <laughs> and uh, I just said, this is who he is, um, and I've known him for a long time. And I, as I've been watching your church, I'm, I'm very excited. And I told Pastor James myself in fellowship that my sincere prayer is that your church will continue to flourish 
and that uh, you would attract as many people as you can to this church because, as you know, good churches are not dime a dozen. You know, churches that are truly seeking to honor God are not a dime a dozen. That, that's my personal testimony. As I go to different churches and meet different pastors, so a lot of times I come back more frustrated than encouraged. They're wondering what's going on. Are, is, are people really taking God seriously? Is the Word of God truly being preached? And I know that at this church that is happening, and it is my earnest desire and prayer that, that God would use your church, you know, in Kazakhstan, in here, and wherever else God places you. And that is truly my earnest prayer. Let's pray and let's jump into the Word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you, Lord God, for the leadership of, of James and Bob and, and even Mike, Lord, as they have gone to Kazakhstan to represent you and teach your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would bless this church tremendously. I thank you for the opportunity to just come and share a few words in, in your word, Father God. And I pray that through this time that you and you alone would receive the glory, Father God, that you would stir up the hearts of men and women to long for you and desire for you even more than they did, Father God, before they came. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Um, if somebody came to you because they were suffering, what kind of counsel would you give? And I'm sure you, know, you don't have to be a pastor to, to have counsel somebody because they were suffering. What kind of counsel would you give someone who was suffering unjustly? Something, they didn't do anything, but they were suffering because of it. The third question I have is, what kind of counseling would you give someone who is suffering unjustly for doing something good? There's a different levels of suffering depending on why you suffer. If you suffer for doing what is bad, you know, it's, you know no one's going to feel bad about that. Say, okay, you deserve that, right? You deserve it. There's no counseling for it, right? Suck it up, right? Second, if you are suffering because you, you didn't do anything, you know, our, our encouragement counseling may be, you know what, endure through that. You know, God is with you. God causes all things to work together for good. Just bear and grin. Or if your boss is causing the suffering, change the job. If you're in a bad relationship and, and they're being abusive to you, change the relationship, you know, as long as you're not married. But what do you do to, what, do you, what kind of counsel do you give somebody who is suffering because they're doing something good. They're trying to be righteous. They're trying to be right, and yet they are suffering for doing what is right. Well, this is the setting behind 1 Peter. If you look at the passage in 1 Peter, it says that this letter is being written to these cities. And this 1 Peter was written about the time of AD 65 when Nero was in power. Now, some of you may have known this, but in, in AD 65, something tremendous happened, which triggered a mass uh, persecution uh, in the Christendom. And what happened was, Nero and, and many other people had a hatred toward Christians that was so intense that they were looking for any reason to blame Christians and to, and to persecute them. And Nero used an opportunity where, where Rome was being burned, and uh, we're not exactly sure why Rome burned down, but after it was burned, he blamed the Christians, saying, Christians did this. And he used that as an excuse to begin 
the persecution of the Christians, and you've probably seen movies of Christians being hauled into the Colosseum, being burned at the stake, crucified, being thrown to lions to be eaten. This was all started around that period, around 65 A.D. Now, we're not, we're not sure if this letter was written prior to that event or after that. But what we do know is that around that time, the persecution and hatred toward Christians were intense. In fact, they actually have a letter from a guy named Pliny the Younger who was put in charge of Bithynia, which is one of the cities mentioned in the beginning of this letter. And several years after he writes this letter, they found, this, they found a letter from him written to uh, the Emperor Trajan, and years of trying to get the Christians uh, extinguished, and out of frustration, he was taking them to Colosseums, and he was, trying to, he was putting uh, Christians in prisons, um, gouging out their eyes, I mean, unmentionable things. But still, these Christians were continuing, and they were, they were flourishing, and out of frustration, seeking some counsel from the emperor, he writes this letter, and this is the exact words of his letter. It says, it seems to me to be necessary to get advice, because many in every age group, every status of life, and both male and female, are now in danger and will be in the future. This plague of superstition has spread over cities and over the fields and villages, but I believe that its advance can be stopped. And this is an actual letter written by the one who was in charge of one of the cities. So you can, you can get a picture of what kind of intense scrutiny, intense uh, hatred and persecution was taking place in these areas. What would you give, what kind of counsel would you give to Christians in that circumstance? You know, Jews hated them. Jews hated Christians because they considered them blasphemers. Gentiles hated them because they were very strange. You know, they worshipped, uh, they were monotheists, where majority of the people at that time were polytheists. In fact, they even considered them atheists because they only believed in one God. And they considered them strange. They consider them aliens, and that's exactly the words that Apostle Paul or Peter tells this church, saying, you are strangers, you are aliens. And if they treat you strange, if they treat you like an alien, don't be surprised, because that's exactly who you are. But what kind of counsel would you give? Now, let me take it to the next level. If they have this kind of hatred toward the Christians, imagine if you were a slave of a master who hated Christians, and you happen to be a Christian. Imagine, I mean, there, there are very few laws to protect the slaves in the first place, but imagine if you had a master who's determined to extinguish Christianity, and you happen to be a possession of his, what kind of uh, torture, what kind of things that he could have done? Well, he addresses this very issue, and I want you to turn with me to verse two, chapter 2, verse 18. Now, you have to, you have to consider, place yourself in the situation of the slave to really get the impact of what he is trying to say. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, the version I just read to you was NIV, but in the, uh, in the NASB, the word for harsh is unreasonable. And in the English Standard Version, the word literally means to be unjust. 
he says to them, you know, you come to him for counseling, say, you know what, my, my master is beating me, you know, he's treating me unjust. And instead of telling him, you know what, let's figure something out. We're going we're gonna to dig a tunnel, you know, underneath this, your house. And next Saturday night, we're going we're gonna to help you escape. You know, you've been tortured enough. Let's go. I mean, I think that's the counseling that I would give. Right? Where's the shovel? How can, we, how can we get you out of this situation? But instead, Apostle Peter tells the slaves under this kind of situation, he says, submit to them. Be submissive to them. In other words, continue to suffer. Continue to suffer. Not only to those who are being good to you, but those who are being unjust to you, unreasonable, harsh, who are beating you. Because he says it is commendable if you do this. Not just to this to the modern world, this is just you can't you can't say this. This is not advice from Dr. Phil. He would never say tell you to suffer, right? But that is the exact counseling of First Peter. Chapter 3, verse 14, it says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed. If you are suffering for righteousness, you are blessed. He said, don't fear what everybody else fears, he says. Also in chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at painful trial you are suffering. Don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ. Not only does he tell you to suffer, not only does he say that this is right, he said you should rejoice. That you have the privilege to suffer in the name of Christ. You should rejoice in that. There's no mention of escape. There's no mention of, of getting you out. He says, continue to suffer. This is commendable. Now, this idea of suffering in our modern Christian thought in Northern America is not talked about, preached about too much because it, it is outside of our paradigm to suffer for Christ. When someone is suffering, our first instinct is to tell them how to get out of this suffering. But the Scripture calls us and tells us that this is a very calling of Christians. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. It's not, he didn't say you may have trouble. He said you will have trouble. You will have trouble. If you are serious about your walk with God and you have decided to follow him, deny yourself, take up the cross daily and follow him, he said you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Acts chapter verse nine, chapter nine, verse sixteen. In the call of Apostle Paul, Jesus, in explaining Apostle Paul's call to the Gentiles, he says, "I will show him how much he must suffer for my name." He didn't just say, "I'll call them to send them to the Gentiles to spread the gospel to bring glory to my name." Although that was the part of the work and that was the goal, but he says through his suffering. Will the gospel go to the Gentiles? And that's exactly what happened. Apostle Paul says in Second Timothy, in chapter 4, that he said he is being poured out like a drink offering. And that was another way of saying in those terms that he is being martyred right now. That he is literally, this chapter 9, 16 is being fulfilled in his life. Through his suffering, God is receiving the glory. 
in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 and 3, Apostle Paul says, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. Apostle Paul says that not only does God call us to suffering, not only does he use the suffering for the glory of God, he says we have been destined. We've been destined for this. Not only did he, not only did he call us to righteousness, he says he has called us to suffering for the name of Christ. We've been destined. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, Apostle Paul says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. It has been granted. Now, these are not the words that we would use for somebody who is suffering. If somebody comes to me and says, I'm suffering, I'm trying to do what's right, they're suffering. It has been granted to you, right? That's what I should have said to James. It has been destined, James, right? No, but he says, it has been destined to you, it has been granted to you. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue in his work of an evangelist, to preach the word faithfully, in season and out of season. Because all these people are falling out in Asia Minor. And he's trying to tell Timothy, you continue to do the work of God. But you would think, if I'm going to encourage another pastor to endure their work with God, you know, I know they've been treating you bad, you know, they talk behind you, they, they stab you in the back, and, man, and then, you know, I say, you know what? Endure. You know, there's going to be great blessing for you. Or move church. Right? But Apostle Paul, in his encouragement, he says, No, I invite you to suffer with me, to continue to suffer, because that suffering for righteousness is good. That's good. God has ordained it, He has predestined it. God called us to it. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles, after being in prison, coming out, and they said in 41, it says, rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. They considered it worthy, and they were rejoicing because of their beating, because of their suffering. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it teaches us that a group of people are going to have a special place in the kingdom of God. Do you know who they are? The Jews? No. The martyrs. It says in the book of Revelation, those who have, been, who have given their life for his sake, they will have a special place in the kingdom of God. In other words, those who suffer the most for Christ will have a special place in the kingdom of God. John Piper, about three years ago, I attended a master's, uh, the Shepherd's Conference with Pastor James, and I think Bob was there. And John Piper came and gave a message about suffering. And I remember there was a Russian pastor there who was in and out of prison for 17 years. And after John Piper gave this message about suffering and God's call to suffering, I remember this Russian pastor came up and he said, you know, I want to thank Pastor uh, John Piper, I mean Piper, and, um, because I never thought that I would ever hear this, uh, this, a sermon on the topic of suffering from an American pastor. And so he was thanking him in one sense, but in the other sense, he just rebuked everybody else. He said, I, I never thought I would hear this from Americans. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, this guy, for 17 years, and I, I'm sure you'll hear testimonies of other 
you know, suffering, and I heard briefly, just kind of on the side, of uh, uh, Pastor James sharing with, uh, with, uh, with some of you guys about his experience. 17 years coming in and out of prison for the name of Christ, sharing the gospel, and he endured through the suffering, and he's rejoicing. But at the same time, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, where suffering is so foreign to our world that it's, again, it's, it, we don't even think twice about it. That's, that's intense. What Apostle Paul, Peter says is intense. How can you tell a slave who is beat, being beaten by his master? Imagine the suffering, not only him, but maybe even his children. You know, some of you guys have children. Imagine if you were in that situation, you had children who were suffering because your master was being unjust to you. And a letter comes to your home and it says, you know what? That's good. Because that's commendable before God. Submit yourself to them. Even more, be a good slave, even more. Especially if they're unjust, because that brings glory to God's name. How can you say that? Are we people who just enjoy suffering? Are we people who, like when we become Christian, all of a sudden, we're, we don't feel pain? You know? What is the motive? What is the, what, where do they gain the strength to endure such beatings, unrighteousness, injustice. That is the premise of chapter 1. Let me, let's jump into chapter 1. What would he, what will he say to this group of people? The title of the message this morning is, How Great is Our Salvation? And he explains to us in chapter 1 that this is why you should suffer, and this is why you are able to endure. And he explains to us the awesomeness of our salvation. That's what chapter 1 is. Our motivation, our desire, our foundation to even desire to suffer for Christ comes from chapter 1. How awesome is our salvation? Verse 1, he begins by saying, to God's elect. To God's elect. You know, some of us, when we, as soon as we hear the word election, it causes confusion, question. Now, I don't know how many times I've debated and, and talked about this issue with people at church. You know, as soon as God elected us, then how does man's free will work? You know what I mean? Is that fair? And we start getting all, all tangled up in this idea of trying to understand election, and we miss the whole point of what election really is. When God says that He elected us, our salvation is based upon His sovereign election, Simply what he is saying is that I chose you. Okay. Now, if, if somebody said, I chose you, like if you're playing, I don't know if when you were young if that ever happened to you when you're playing like kickball or something and, and people, okay, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, and then you're not chosen. You know, you're sitting back there and it's like, oh man, I, I wish you would choose me, right? But if they did choose you, you'd say, yeah, great, I got chosen. Nobody sits there and say, wait a minute, why did he choose me? Right? Why did he choose them? The intent, sometimes you get so caught up in theological, trying to understand the theological premise behind everything that we miss the whole point of God's message of election. His point of telling us that he elected us was not to reveal to us the intricate details of how salvation works. 
The point of election is to teach us that he chose us. He chose us. There's something in you, something about you that God desired, and he chose us. We don't know what, what it is. I remember back in elementary school, I was growing up in Philadelphia, and in, uh, in, they had a school play, and it was the king and I. And I was chosen for a role on this play. And it was a big deal because the whole school and their parents and neighbors came around, and it must have been a couple thousand people in the auditorium. And I remember thinking, like, how special I felt, you know. Later on, I realized that it was because I was Asian. There was only three Asians in the school. <laughs> and the other two were my brothers, you know. But I remember thinking at that time how, how special I felt, like I was chosen, right? The doctrine of election should elicit in our hearts that same, that same idea of preciousness. When God said He elected us, I'm not saying it's wrong for us to debate and to, and to struggle and to labor over the understanding of, of proper theology, but at the same time, don't miss the point. He says, first of all, He elected us, He chose us. The idea literally, literally, in the literal understanding of this passage, means God, we are God's choice. You know, when you buy meat, it said USDA choice, means it's a choice meat. And that's the literal understanding of this passage. He begins by saying, you are God's choice. You are the choice of God. And we need to properly understand that in order to appreciate what it is that we have gotten. What is it about you? What is it about me that God would choose me? I, I don't think I'll ever really properly understand that. But I feel very special that God elected me. He chose me. He says this choice of God in verse 2 is based upon foreknowledge of God, the Father. Foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge, some people trying to understand free will and election and all this, and they try to add meaning to this word foreknowledge and saying that God is simply fortune-telling and telling of the future, saying God knew that what you were going to, what you were going to choose. So based upon that, he said that he chose us as if God was just fortune-telling, right? He's reading somebody's palm and realized that, hey, you're going to choose, so I elected you. That's not what this means. He says that his choice of us is based upon Foreknowledge, and the word foreknowledge in the Greek is prognosis. And it's a combination of two words, pro meaning prior to, before, and then some of you probably know the word, ginosko, which is an intimate knowledge, personal knowledge. And basically what that means is that God had personal, intimate knowledge of us, and based upon that, He chose us. Based upon His intimate, personal knowledge of us, He says He chose us. There's a girl in our church that just recently started to come, and I haven't seen her probably for about 16, 17 years. And uh, she, actually she used to go to the church that, uh, that we used to go to, uh, Kelly and James and I. And when I left the church about 16, 17 years ago, she was only about two or three years old, and I haven't seen her since. And then recently she went to UC Irvine. And one of our church guys ended up meeting up with her, and then she started, She came out to our church. And when she came to our church, I immediately recognized her, you know, because she looks the same. 
Yeah, you know, some people change, you don't recognize. But this girl looked exactly the same. So she just grew, you know. And I remember looking at her and I said, hey, you know. And I, to me, to me, like she's not a stranger to me. I used to pick her up and I remember your know, parents changing her diaper and, you know, like goofing around with her at her, at her house. And I remember her. <laughs> the way she's looking at me, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, right? You're a stranger. I don't know you. Who are you? You know? But to me, she's not a stranger. Right? She just, she didn't recognize me. She, she doesn't remember me, but I know her. It's not through pictures. It's not somebody told me. I had an intimate personal knowledge of her. But she doesn't know me. And I think, you know, when we talk about foreknowledge, God says God knew us. And that's what he's talking about. He had personal intimate knowledge of us. And based upon that, he says, he chose us. I mean, you know, God's salvation really needs to sink in. You know? The awesomeness of God's choice of us. And he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in the sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as a son through Jesus Christ in according to his pleasure and will. How far does this foreknowledge go back? He says before the creation of the world. Before our parents ever met. Before there was any idea of what the world was going to be like other than in the mind of God, he said he had intimate knowledge of us. Doesn't that blow you? That blows my mind. That God had me in his heart from the very beginning of creation. That is a salvation. That is a doctrine of election. And he said, this is not random. He said, it was according to his pleasure and will. He didn't force himself to do it. He said, according to his pleasure and will, he foreknew us and he predestined us and then he elected us. I don't know what kind of impact that has on you, but to me, that just blows my mind. That whatever God had planned for me now, that God was thinking of this way, way before, ever before, I ever became conscious of him. He knew me. Secondly, He says in verse 3, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. He has given us new birth. Now some of your more literal translations says He has begotten us. He has begotten us. The word begotten, I don't know, some of your translations, John 3.16, you have, uh, that's the way I memorize John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the word begotten there, I remember having an argument with uh, Jehovah's Witness, and you know, you see, he's begotten, right? And we are begotten, so he is like us, except he is a little bit better, right? And I remember having conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, the two words are completely different in the Greek. The begotten in John 3.16 is monogene, meaning, you know, the word mono, right? Alone, by himself. And emphasis in John 3.16 is to emphasize the uniqueness of Christ. Not that he was begotten the way we would think of it in English, but he was uniquely, unique from any other creation, any other thing in the universe. He is unique. So that word is to emphasize the uniqueness of Christ. So in fact, that first, instead of supporting the argument of the Jehovah's Witnesses, it is exactly the opposite of that. 
But the word that he uses here, begotten, is a word anagenesa. And it means to give birth or to regenerate. In fact, later on, in 1 Peter 1.23, he uses the word, and he encourages them about our salvation. He says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. And the seed there is the word that we, where we get the word sperm. The word is sperma. So the idea that he's getting, this, this new birth, the regeneration, the picture is very similar to the, to the way we bear children. We have children. And that is the idea that is given to us in First Peter about our own regeneration, that we have been born. But it wasn't simply just born by a flick of a finger. Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you, want to, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you must be born again. But this born again is, is not something that God did, you know, from a distance. He bore us. Some of you had the experience of bearing children. You know what that's like. If one thing, you know, I was, I was there with, uh, you know, all three of my children's birth, and all three of them we had, was very unique. But I remember coming out of that very, um, what's I'm trying to look for the right word. Uh, I had the utmost respect for the females. Okay. My older brother, he's kind of stoic. You know, he, he never shows much expression. But I remember when he had his first child, you know, he came out of the hospital room with a glow on his face. And he said something very uncharacteristic of him. And that's exactly what he said. He said I have new respect for females. And I remember him saying it. Now, you got to know my brother, too. To, to really understand what, what that was. But he said, giving birth, you know, was such an intense emotional experience. And that is, that is the idea given to us about our, our birth. You know, maybe some of you, somebody preached the gospel and you, something, you know, something inside of you said, I believe in that, and you made a commitment, and God's been causing you to grow and be sanctified, and we don't really truly appreciate what it is that God was doing. But he said, God bore us. I want you to look with me. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He said, To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He, in quoting Isaiah 53, he said, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And this passage is a description of that process of birth. Nine months. For those of you guys who have experienced that, either, you know, men, we kind of superficially experienced it, but those of you ladies who actually had the experience of giving birth, you know, you know the difficulty. You know, you know, you know that what you have to bear for nine months to deliver. And the description that is given us about Christ bearing fruit and, and so that God may deliver us and regenerate us. You know, when we experience injustice, or even from our own parents. If anybody has the right to be unjust, unjust to us, it's our own parents, right? They have the right to be unjust because they gave so much to us, you know? 
they put up with us, you, they woke up in the middle of the morning, if anything, you know, if you have a child, you appreciate what your parents did when, when you were younger. Waking up three, uh, three in the morning while you're sick, having to take care of your child, and going through that for weeks, and just thinking, I remember thinking, man, I can't believe my parents went through, went through all this with us, you know? And three of us, three boys too, in a foreign land, you know? And I, I remember thinking, like, wow, I, I really appreciate them. If anybody has right to be unjust, it's our parents. But when our, even when our parents are unjust to us, you know, it doesn't sit right with us, right? It's very difficult to bear, even from our parents. But when there's injustice from your peers, well, forget about it. How dare you, right? How dare you be unjust? Who are you to talk to me that way? How dare you do that? But if somebody was subordinate to us, imagine if your children was unjust. What? Don't speak to me. You know who I am? You know what I did for you? How dare you be unjust to me? Imagine that. Right? There's different levels of injustice. Well, imagine the injustice that our Lord and Savior has to endure. He not only experienced injustice, he experienced injustice from his own creation. And not only were they his own creation, he experienced injustice from the very people that he was going to be crucified for. He was the greatest, he experienced the greatest injustice doing the greatest good. And he says that that is the example that is left for us, for our salvation. That's why you, why you ought to embrace suffering injustice for the name of Christ. Because con- compared to what Christ did for us, it's nothing. He says, Christ bore us, regenerated us. We have been begotten of God through the intense injustice and pain that our Christ experienced for us. Third and finally, he says, our salvation in chapter 1 will never perish. Chapter 1, verse 4. And into an, he says, this inheritance was given to us and it can never perish, spoil, or fade. And these three words, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, has three understandings. One, it is incorruptible. Second, the word undefiled means morally or religiously pure. Okay. One is undefiled, incorruptible. Second is pure. Third is unfading. And it remains the same. So to sum up verse 4, basically saying your inheritance, God's choice of us, based upon his intimate foreknowledge of us, gave us regeneration, we have been begotten of him, and this inheritance will be perfect, it can never be tainted, and it will remain that way for eternity. You know, when I read this verse, somebody came up to me and said, you know, what is the guarantee that when we get to heaven that the same things that happened to the angels who fell wouldn't happen to us, right? That's a good question, right? The Bible says that Satan took a third of the angels in rebellion against us. But they were also created beings. They were also in heaven. But what guarantees us that when we go to heaven, that the same things aren't going to happen to us? That we desire his glory, just like Satan did, right? What's the guarantee? Well, the guarantee is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. He says, but by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Forever. 
the difference between what happened to the angels and for our inheritance when we get to heaven for eternity is that the blood of Christ makes us perfect forever. Forever. It is the blood of Christ that guarantees us that our inheritance is perfect, can never be corrupted, and it will remain that way for eternity. That is our salvation. It can never be corrupted, defiled, or fade. In fact, that is the very reason it says in verse 10 of that same passage, it says, Concerning the salvation, the prophet who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, search intently and with greatest care. The prophets were prophesying. You know, Isaiah 53, you guys know, and this is repeated in chapter 2. Imagine Isaiah giving this prophecy about the Christ who is going to suffer for our deliverance. For our sins, he's going to be crucified. And as he was prophesying this, so 1 Peter chapter 1 says, they look intently. Imagine that. Imagine if you were a prophet, you know, and God is speaking through you, and God says, so this is going to happen. The Christ is going to come, the Son of God. He's going to suffer for you, and He's going to bring the salvation of mankind to the world. What? When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And that's exactly what it says. Because the prophets understood how great of a salvation was coming. And because of it, that they looked intently to find out. What did you if you understood, if we really truly understood the awesomeness of our salvation, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 12, it said, even the angels long to look into these things. Even the angels. That's how awesome this salvation is. God shields us to this salvation. He says that you, you can't lose it. In verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power unto the coming of salvation. The word there for shield is, an, is a military word, and it's a picture of a military convoy going alongside of us to protect us. And that military convoy is God himself. He said he will shield us to make sure, to guarantee that this salvation that God, that God chose us and, and based upon foreknowledge, who have, we have been begotten, and this inheritance that can never be perish, never perish, spoil, or fade. This salvation that is so great that even the prophets and the angels long to look onto these things. It says it is guaranteed and protected and shielded by God's power. Why is it so important for us to have the joy of our salvation? Because our spiritual life really depends on it. If we don't understand the joy of our salvation, that is the beginning of a mediocre Christian life. You know, you guys are going to have communion after service today. Why is that so important? It's important because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And every time we remember it, what are we to remember? We are to remember what he did on the cross. In other words, it is to remember our salvation. Because it is absolutely essential. He is calling us to suffer for his namesake. Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4.12, I have seek, found the secret of being content in every and all situation, whether, whether have being full or going hungry, whether having a lot or having a little. I have found the secret. Did Apostle Paul find something in prison? 
Did he know something that all other Christians don't know? Was he a super Christian or God revealed to him something that you and I cannot possibly grasp? No. Apostle Paul is talking about the joy of his salvation, his inheritance. This is something that you and I all have. This secret is no longer a secret to you and I. It may be a secret to the world, but he says, I have found the secret. And every single genuine Christian knows this secret. If you understand the joy of your salvation. Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 24, and this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. You know what Father Paul is saying? Father Paul is saying, I want to die. I want to die. To me, being with the Lord is much better. I want to die. I want to die and be with my Lord. I want this inheritance. I want it. For to me, I can't wait till I die to get with my Lord, but says, you know what, for now it's better for you than if I stay. So I will stay. But I want to die. Because he understands his salvation. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, to the church of Ephesians, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There he had it. But Apostle Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And that is my prayer. Some of you may have been saved for many years. Some of you may have even had seminary education. Some of you may be leading Bible studies and you may be doing a lot of great things for God. But we all, every single one of us, needs to be touched and be enlightened to understand the depth of salvation. How awesome is our salvation? And when you understand the awesomeness of your salvation, then your Christian life is just simply a response. It's simply a response. Let me close with one more thing. You know, Council of Nicene that, was, that took place in the 4th century A.D. It was at this council where they finally articulated the doctrine of the Trinity. And at this council, 318 church fathers showed up. And out of the 318 church fathers, 302 of them were lame, had one eye, some of them lost their hands, and a lot of them were limping. And out of 318, only 12 of them were completely healthy. And everybody else were lame, one-eyed, or limping. And every single one of them has experienced torture for the name of Christ. And by these men, the church continued. It was these men who, who articulated the doctrine of Trinity. It was these men that found, founded upon sacrifices and suffering for the name of Christ. Not only these men, but men who were before them, men who came after them. Through their suffering, God received the glory. The gospel went forth. The men in Kazakhstan, in Russia, in China, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and even men here in the United States who have suffered for the name of Christ because they understood the richness of his inheritance that God has promised us in Christ Jesus. I challenge you this morning, and I encourage you, I implore you, 
don't settle for religious life. Holding on to a form of godliness, yet denying its power. Don't hide behind right doctrine. Don't hide behind a good church. Use it for the glory of God. Don't be afraid to suffer for God's name's sake, because in its suffering, in the suffering for Christ, he says it is commendable. And you will find true joy, and you will know what it means when, when he said, I have come to give life, and to give this life abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inheritance. We pray, Father God, that each each time we come together to worship you, that there will be a sense of awe and reverence for your name, Father God, because of what you have done for us. I pray, Lord God, that our salvation will never become old to us. That our salvation, Father, will stir in us a passion for your name. And give us the strength, Father God, to endure all things for your name's sake. Help us, Lord God, not to say they'll settle for a mediocre life. But you would teach us what it means, Father God, to walk in faith, to pick up the cross, to deny ourselves, Lord God. Help us to remember from the, from the height from which we have fallen that our passion, Father God, would be for you. As, as David sings, Lord God, create in me a clean heart, Lord God, and restore the joy of our salvation that we may honor you, glorify you as you deserve. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward?